So we think we are uh, pretty sophisticated compared to the people of the past. You know, we hear about how the people of the past worshipped different gods. They had the moon god and the sun god, fertility gods, gods for the harvest, gods for the rain. And we think we are more sophisticated. We, we believe we're above that. In fact, the, the plagues of Exodus are an attack on the gods of Egypt. So if you go through each plague in Exodus, it's, it's an attack on each one of those gods that they believed in, showing that Yahweh was superior to whatever god they were worshiping at the time. So in a similar manner, the first four trumpets that we will study today are an attack on the pagan gods of Rome. And you'll see nature entwined with that. Yet, where does that leave us? The sophisticated modernist that knows that there is no sun god, there's no moon god, there's no rain god, there's no harvest god. And I think though we may not have gods that represent different aspects of nature, I, still, I believe that we still struggle with nature worship. And in fact, cannot fathom anything greater than nature. So this last week, we witnessed the awesome power of the volcano off the coast of Tonga, right? There were tsunami warnings all up and down the west coast of America. We witnessed the awesome power and we are forced to deal with humanity's inadequacies. As much as we try, we cannot control nature. We cannot control the volcano. We cannot control the wind. We cannot control the climate. We are at the mercy of nature. And you know, when that realization hits in, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us feel small and weak in our arrogance. I mean, we are so sophisticated, we can send, send men to the moon. We have plans to go to Mars. We, we think we can control so much, and yet we are reminded constantly of how fragile and small we are and how big nature is. And thus, we can't fathom something that controls something that we can't even come close to controlling. It's difficult for us to wrap our mind around God who can control with, with one simple thought, can control something that we struggle to control, but never will. And so as a result, we begin to, to worship or or to idolize nature. But when God comes to judge, he will first demonstrate his might and control through nature. And it's going to be all in a push for our repentance. And that's what we'll study today as we Turn to Revelation 8. So we've been walking through this series uh, as we study Revelation, and we've titled it Hopeful. And we titled it Hopeful because Revelation should give us hope. Some people study it to, to find 
you know, a timeline. Some people are looking for the signs to try to find when will this all take place. And, and that's okay to do, but I think we can get so involved in that we actually miss the point. And the point is that revelation is to give us hope. Because in the end, in the end, God wins. In the end, we have victory through Christ. So no matter what happens, no matter if there is a volcano, volcanic eruption, no matter if we look over to the San Francisco peaks and we start seeing some steaming, one of our senior saints, he's told me, he's lived here for a long time now, he's in his 80s, and he's told me, you know, they call that an extinct volcano. But I'll tell you what, Aaron, if you ever see some smoke, you get in your car and you start going. So I just, every now and then I think about that as I look up there. But, you know, that could go off and we could see the devastation. We could see the destruction. Our houses can get leveled and never more seen again. We could look at an entire new ecosystem here in Flagstaff. And yet, we can still rejoice and have hope because we know what the end looks like. So that's why we chose to call this hopeful as we study through Revelation. And, and it is important to look at timelines. It's important to look at all these different facts. But the point that we cannot miss throughout this entire series, throughout our entire, entire study of Revelation, is that we have hope. We have hope as believers in Christ. So the context coming into to, uh, chapter 8, we, we're in the second vision. So Revelation is broken into four different visions. We're into the second vision. The, the beginning of the second vision, John is pulled up into what's called the throne room of heaven. And so he sees the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and he sees 24 elders and four creatures and a great multitude worshiping God. And then he tells us that, that there's this uh, seal or sorry, there's this document that's sealed with seven seals. And Christ is the one who is worthy to open it. So Christ begins to break the seals and open this document so that he can read what's going on. And the seals, the first four seals, are what's called a lifting of the restrainer. So right now there's a restrainer here that is restraining man's depravity. You think man is depraved right now? It doesn't take much for us to figure out man is depraved, right? We can turn on the news. What is the news going to be all about? Man's depravity. Man's depravity drives the news. If you don't think man is depraved, you just aren't paying attention. Man is depraved. We're sinful. We're full of sin. And so, if you think man is depraved right now, you haven't seen anything yet. As the restrainer gets lifted, man's depravity gets worse and worse. And destruction and war and everything you could possibly think of that is evil is filling the earth. That's the first four seals. And then the fifth seal, we see the saints cry out to God, when will you, when will you exact justice? When will you bring forth justice? And God's answer is, just wait. There are still saints that I'm going to seal. There are still saints. I'm still being patient. Wait. And then we see the sixth seal being broken open, and nature starts to give us this crazy picture. And it is a picture of God's judgment coming to the earth, and man hides. And then they cry out to the mountains, fall on us, hide us, from the wrath of God, because they realize 
God's justice is coming. And the whole point of the, of the six seals is that God's justice is coming. And disbelief, disbelief in Christ is not a result of confusion, but of rebellion. It's a theme we will see over and over again in Revelation. Disbelief is not a result of confusion, but of rebellion. And then chapter 7, we get what's called an interlude. And so we, it, the interlude draws us deeper into the vision. And we see a great multitude worshiping God. They are contrasted with the, with the noise of the earth dwellers, the men on earth that are still living in rebellion, yelling for the rocks to fall on them. And then we see the contrast with the saints in heaven worshiping God. And that's where we get to chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven, seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all gra green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The, angel, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we saw in the first six seals that man's depravity was being lifted. The saints were crying out for justice and the start of God's judgment, the start of God's justice. Then we saw an interlude. Now we see the seventh and final seal being opened. And within the seventh and final seal, we actually see the trumpets, and then within the trumpets we will see bowls. The seven means, uh, seven is that number for perfection. So what we see here is God's perfect judgment coming upon the earth. That his, that his patience is at an end. He has been patient enough. Now it is time to exact his perfect justice, his perfect judgment upon the earth. And so the Lamb opens the seventh seal. And there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
The silence reveals the seriousness, the somberness of the event. The saints in heaven, the great multitude that were worshiping God, recognizes what this means. And so there is silence. We use silence as a time to reflect. Oftentimes at a memorial or when, when a tragic event happens, there are times of silence. You know, if you go to a sporting event, they'll, they'll take a moment out for a time of silence in honor of someone. And we reflect upon. Oftentimes, those times of silence are pretty short. In fact, today I thought about giving us about a 30-second moment of silence just to reflect. But as I thought about it and actually waited 30 seconds, I realized that some of you guys just can't handle it. (laughs) And by some of you, I mean mainly me. It's weird staying up on stage for 30 seconds of silence. it, It can be difficult. 30 seconds of silence, it's tough for some people to wrestle with. That's just half a minute. In heaven, there's going to be a half hour of silence. A half hour to stop and reflect on the moment. The seventh seal, God's perfect judgment, is a serious issue. It's a somber moment. God's grace has been lavished upon the world. His grace is still actually going to be revealed through this justice and through these judgments. And yet, it will be a harsh time. And so there is a somberness in this moment. So there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now we see uh, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, trumpets were used for uh, uh, three main purposes. The first main purpose was to gather people. And so during the Exodus, as they're wandering through the wilderness, there were trumpets. They used trumpets to signify whether people should stop or whether people should march. Think about two million people marching through the wilderness. There's got to be some type of organization and some type of communication. So they used trumpets, and they were very organized, and these trumpets gathered the people together when it was time to go. And then they would blast the trumpet when it was time for different people to walk forward and to move. We see another time in the New Testament where there will be a trumpet blast when God, when Christ comes to gather the church for the rapture, he's going to use a trumpet blast to gather the church together. So we see trumpets can be used to gather Trumpets are also used to announce a king. Anytime there was a new king, he would be announced through a trumpet blast. But I think this trumpet blast, and the seven trumpets in particular, parallel something even more. And if you remember the story of the walls of Jericho, if you're not familiar, I want to start actually back all the way back with Abraham. And some of you are like, Abraham all the way to Jericho? And I think it's important because you'll see a lot of parallels as we come into it. 
So Abraham, God, God calls Abraham out and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a special nation that will bless all of the nations and I need you to walk to this promised land. So he goes to the promised land and God says, view the promised land. And he views the promised land and then God says, but you can't have this yet. You, your, your nation will one day have this promised land, but right now there's a people group that live there and I want to give them time, 400 years to come to repentance. Right now, these people are living in rebellion against me, and they need, I'm going to give them 400 years. Think about 400 years. What was happening 400 years ago? Do you, do you even remember? 400 years. The United States was, in, was not a nation. 400 years to repent. Think about the patience of God. And I think it's important for us to emphasize this because so many people paint this picture of the Old Testament as God is like this. I think Richard Dawkins, who's an infamous atheist, says he's a megalomaniac, genocidal God. He, th- he, he paints this picture of the Old Testament God as a God that goes around killing off people groups left and right who's so consumed with his own self. But he doesn't stop to think about 400 years to repent. So he's going to give him 400 years to repent. And while he does that, he, takes, uh, he grows Israel into a, a pretty decent tribe. And then he takes them into Egypt. And under the power, I, sh- I almost would say under the care of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, he grows Israel from a clan and a tribe to a great nation. And then when the time is right, when that, when that people group in, in the land of Canaan has fulfilled their iniquity, when they've come to a place where God said, okay, you're not, I've given you 400 years and you're still not repenting, now I'm going to release and bring the Israelites and I'm going to give them this land. And so he, he hits, the Isra- or hits the Egyptians with a, with a bunch of plagues. And what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. And every single plague demonstrates that God, Yahweh, is better than whatever God they're worshiping. And yet, what does Pharaoh do? He continues to harden his heart. Until eventually, the firstborn son dies and Pharaoh says, be gone. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and hardens his heart again. And he chases them down. And in the midst of the sea, the Red Sea collapses on them and wipes out their military force. And the Israelites start to come up to the land of Canaan. Now, this did not, they didn't have social media back then, that's true. But it wasn't like it happened in some dark corner of the world where it was some insignificant country that God just took on. Egypt, at the time, was the most powerful country in the world, and word spread fast. So the Canaanites, who God had given 400 years to repent, now see what God has done to Egypt, the most powerful country in the world, and they see Israel marching towards them, and they still have time to repent. But what do they do? They continue to harden their heart. And so as Israel marches up and they cross the Jordan River, 
and they come up against Jericho, what does Jericho do? They know that they've been rebelling against God. They know, and, and that's another part, just a second, that's another part that we get wrong so often, because when we think of the Canaanites, and when people that give you this idea that God is a genocidal God of the Old Testament, they think that the Canaanites were probably like me and you. You know, fairly good people. I mean, we speed a little bit, but, but other than that, we're kind of, we obey the law. A couple decades ago, archaeologists were uncovering Jericho, and in the middle of Jericho, they found an altar with tens of thousands of baby parts. And what the people of Jericho were doing was sacrificing their babies to their God. These were not nice people. They were genocidal. They were murderers. Think of whatever evil thought you can think of. They were steeped in it. And just think about the patience God had with them. 400 years waiting for them to repent. But the time has come. They've run out of time, and now Israel is marching. Now Israel is at Jericho. They still have time to repent. They still have time. And they see Israel's army forming around them. They still have time to repent. And yet... They never do except for one woman, and she, the one woman that that repents, is spared. At the end of their march, seven priests blow seven trumpets, and the walls fall on top of themselves. And Jericho is sacked. And that opens the way to the rest of the land of Canaan. I, may, I, I state that so surely, because, or I, I, I think it matches so perfectly here, because we're seeing something else, something so similar go on right now. God has given time for repentance. He's continued to give that time for repentance. He's given us the evidence we need. And yet, no matter what, there will always be some people who have hardened their heart, shaken their fist at God, and said, Forget you, I'm going to do it my way. So, there are seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the golden censer was used as, uh, at temple during national prayer time for the Israelites. If you'll remember, the uh, story was Ze- uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. When Zechariah uh, is told that him and Elizabeth will give birth to John the Baptist, uh, he's in the temple uh, with the golden censer, offering up prayers on behalf of Israel. So that was like Israel's prayer time. He was there representing Israel at the golden censer. That's kind of what this represents. And he was given much incense. Incense is uh, symbolic for it's acceptable. So what we see here is that the prayers of the saints are acceptable. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so what we see here is that, uh, you know, sometimes there's an argument of whether or not something is symbolic or whether it's literal. 
I think it can be both. It can be both symbolic and literal. And I think this is happening quite possibly literally, but it is also symbolic. So, we don't need an angel to bring our prayers before God. That's why I say it's symbolic. But within the literalness of what is going on here, the symbolism is that God is accepting our prayers. So we see throughout Hebrews that we don't need an intercessory uh, person for our prayers. We don't need an intermediary. We don't need to pray to someone to pray to someone to pray to God or bring the prayers to God. We don't need to pray to angels to bring the God, prayers to God. God has demolished the wall of separation between man and God. There was a time when God is holy, but we are unholy, and so we did need someone to bring the prayers to God. But because God, when he, when he died on the cross, he demolished that, and he has made us holy. We no longer need someone to bring our prayers to God. So we can pray to God. He hears our prayers. God hears your prayers. You don't need to talk to me to talk to God. You can talk to God on your own. I don't have like a special line. You can talk to God on your own. Prayer life is very important. You should be talking to God. So we see the symbolism and I believe it's symbolism because we don't need an angel to bring our prayers to God. God can hear our prayers. But the point of the symbolism is that God hears our prayers and he acts upon our prayers. Now, maybe you've prayed something and you're like, but God didn't answer that prayer. Well, sometimes the prayer or the answer to the prayer isn't something we like. So we go back to the fifth seal and what is the prayer of the saints? God, when will you... Uh, when will you bring about justice? And he says, wait. Sometimes the answer to our prayer is, wait. Wait. That doesn't mean God isn't hearing your prayer. It means God has a bigger and better plan. But God hears your prayer. But here he hears the prayer and he acts upon it. The, the angel taking the censer and filling it with fire from the altar and throwing it onto the earth is symbolic for showing us that God is bringing the judgment, God is bringing the justice down to earth. And then we see the pills of thunder, or we hear the pills of thunder, uh, rumblings, flashes of lightning. Now, typically, you see the lightning before you hear the thunder, right? I think this is, I think God has done this in the opposite way, specifically because he wants to demonstrate his control over nature. And the rest is going to follow. So now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So that's the preparation. The time has come. Perfect God's perfect judgment is coming on the earth. And it's going to start with nature. The first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hell and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth. So if you can imagine... Uh, it raining down, hail, fire, and blood all mixed together, raining down upon the earth. It's God showing that this is not just a natural occurrence. And with every single one of these trumpets, we're going to see it's not a natural occurrence. There's no way that you can excuse it as a natural occurrence. Sure, maybe fire. Fire raining from heaven, there's some way we could explain that as a natural occurrence, right? Like, I'm sure we could investigate it. We could figure out a way that fire was raining down from heaven. All right. Hell, that's an easy one. We see that all the time, right? Just wait for the summer months if you haven't experienced it. 
but blood? I don't know if anyone's ever experienced here on earth blood raining from heaven. So he's mixing these three elements together so that we can be sure this is a supernatural event. And therefore, oh, sorry, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. Now just think about last June and the fires that we had. Think about every summer in California and the fires that they have. The devastation, the destruction. It's going to pell in comparison. And a third of the trees were burned up. Now the term trees here in the Greek literally means fruit trees. So a third of the fruit trees, a third of the produce trees are burned up. And all green grass was burned up. The green grass here is pasture land. So where the cows or the livestock would be out feeding is burned up. Now many theologians believe that it's all the green grass instead of a third because the green grass grows back so quickly. So the pasture land will all be burned up. Think about the devastation, but not just the devastation. Think about the economic impact. All of a sudden, all livestock will no longer be able to eat. Now, uh, some people have said, and I've heard this as an argument to go uh, vegetarian, that uh, growing crops is more efficient than uh, livestock. And so they'll do some math for you, and the math turns out true, that it actually takes more energy to grow like a pound of soybeans or, or whatever beans versus a pound of animal. And, and it takes more water to, to produce the animal than this pound of soybeans, and that's true. But what they failed to take into account, I, uh, the first church I ever worked for, there was a bunch of ranchers there. I was a city boy. I don't know how I ended up at a ranching church, but it was awesome, and I learned a lot. But I, I was like, man, I, I kept hearing these arguments, and so I took one of the ranchers aside, and I was like, so tell me, is this true? He goes, well, yeah, that's true, except for what they t- failed to take into account is there are a lot of... Uh, a lot of areas that we will never be able to turn into an agricultural area. Like, we'll never be able to plant our fields on the side of a mountain. But cows can go to the side of a mountain and eat all the pasture there. Or or there's a lot of different plants that we just can't eat that cows will. Have you ever tried to eat tumbleweed? No? Oh, wait. Oh, I saw a head shaking. Yes, I don't know. (laughs) How'd it turn out for you? (laughs) Not good? Yeah. Not good at all, right? No, I've never tried tumbleweed, uh, but now I'm curious. No, but we don't eat tumbleweed, man. And we don't eat tumbleweed for a reason, but cows do. So there's a lot of different uh, plants that we can't eat. That, so so there, there's some truth if you just take some, if you like leave out a couple facts. And some of the facts are that cows turn, what, uh, turn certain things into energy that we can't turn into energy. And then we get the pleasure of eating that cow for that energy. So, but all that to say... Think about the destruction. The crops that we would rely on destroyed, but not only the crops, but also the livestock that we rely on also destroyed. There's going to be a huge economic impact. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now, something like, I like to emphasize that like again, 
Because he's not saying that it is a mountain. It's something like a mountain. So he's trying to describe something that the people of his day didn't exactly know. I think it's most likely a meteorite. If you think about a big mass of land coming from the sky and burning with fire. Sounds like a, a giant meteorite, right? Coming down into the sea. The sea is all of the oceans. All of the salt water. So Mediterranean Sea, the Indian Ocean, Pacific, Atlantic... So it was thrown into the sea, and a third of all of that sea became blood. Once again, we're seeing God make sure we understand that it's not a natural event. Now, some people will try to say, well, you know, he's just trying to explain something that's kind of like blood. So it's, it's probably some kind of mixture of like iron, and it's, turning things, it's just turning the sea red. But it's not turning the sea red, it's turning the sea blood. And God is using this to demonstrate his authority over nature, and he's making sure we understand that it's not a natural event. It is a supernatural event. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. Think of the devastation and the destruction. Man, people go crazy when there's an oil spill, right? And we see the devastation. We see the destruction and the oil spill. This is a third of the creatures in the sea, dead. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Now in uh, Rome, during John's day, the sea lanes were considered the lifeblood of the Roman Empire. Trade was very important. You constantly had ships going back and forth. A third of those ships destroyed would have brought Rome to its knees. Think about it today. What happens when our shipping containers are backed up off the coast of California? Think about the bare shelves you've been experiencing. Nothing in comparison to what's going to happen when a third of the seafaring ships are destroyed. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. Oh, wait, sorry. Back up to verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven. Now, once again, this is a place where people kind of are like, well, it can't necessarily be a star, so maybe it's a meteorite. Maybe, you know, it's, it's something else. I, I think if it was a meteorite or something other than a star, it would have said something like a star. But he doesn't use that terminology here. I think this is a literal star. And some people are trying to figure out the natural way God can do that. And they might argue something along the lines of like, well, stars are so far away. You know, there's no way this could be a literal star. Now, I don't know how God is going to do it. Maybe he will bring a star and, like, make it teleport. Or, you know, God could make something move within a half second across the universe. Yes, that's true. God could do that. Or he could just create a star right in front of our eyes. That is how powerful he is. So let's not get too caught up in, like, arguing whether or not this is a meteor. I think it's a real star. And once again, what's the point? 
The point is that no one can confuse whether this is a naturally occurring event or whether it's a supernatural event. It will be easy to pinpoint this is a supernatural event. God has authority over all nature, not just here on earth, but throughout all the universe. God has authority and can call it to happen however he wants it to happen. So this great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers. So at some point as it enters the atmosphere, it like just spreads out and it hits a third of the rivers and on the spring water. So this is all fresh water, all drinkable water will be, or, or I should say a third of all drinkable water will be hit by this star. And the name of the star is Wormwood. Wormwood is a bitter plant and it's so bitter that one ounce in 524 gallons of water can be like you can still taste it it would absolutely ruin the 524 gallons of water now a lot of us have cisterns oftentimes we like to keep it around 2,000 gallons but every now and then you know our cisterns will drop to like 500 or so just think someone dropping one ounce of wormwood into your cistern and you're not, that, all that water is wasted. You're never drinking that water again. You're going to have to clean it all out. So it, the star is wormwood, and a third of the water became worm, wormwood, and many people died. Now this is, once again, a place where people like to say, well, wormwood, although it's bitter and horrible tasting, it's not actually poisonous. So they, they try to point, like poke a hole in what the Bible is saying here, but they don't understand that wormwood, although is a plant, it was originally just a word used for bitter. So it meant like bitter or undrinkable, and eventually that plant got the name wormwood because it was bitter. So it literally means bitter and undrinkable, and it's also synonymous in the Old Testament with sorrow and grief. So they would say if something was bringing about sorrow, they could say it was wormwood, it was sorrowful. It was bringing about grief. It was wormwood. So a third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And this is an undoing of Exodus 15. So if you're familiar with that, in Exodus 15, as they have left uh, Egypt, they come across some water that is wormwood, that is bitter, and they can't drink it. And so God commands Moses to drop a stick. He drops a stick into the water, and it makes it sweet water and refreshing water. This is the opposite. This is the undoing of Exodus 15. And once again, he does it in such a way as that it can't have a natural explanation. It can only be supernatural. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was stuck, or uh, sorry, struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So we've got three named uh, celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and this is to emphasize the totality of it all, that there is no celestial uh, light-giving body that will not be affected by this. The word struck means sudden sickness. So it's like God literally plagues the sun, the moon, and the stars here in such a way that a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a 
third of their light might be darkened, and a third might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now this is kind of an awkward uh, sentence in the Greek. The, the Greek is kind of clumsy here. And so we're not entirely sure what this means, that a third will be... Uh, a third of their light might be darkened. And some people think that the sun will only shine like a, a, as third of brightness. And the moon will only have a third of its brightness and the stars will only have a third of their brightness. Others think that it's like a time frame that it'll be for like a third of a day or a third of the night. In all honesty, I don't think we, we really know what's going on here. But the point is that the way it will be done, once again, you can't call it a natural event. It will be clearly a supernatural event. So in the summer of 2017, there was a uh, total eclipse that you could view. Uh, it kind of ran through the United States, and one of those states that it really hit that you could see what's called totality, was Nebraska. So Jen and I, living in Wyoming, right next, we went to Nebraska, and we went to a camp there, and we decided we were going to see totality. Uh, and, you know, I was actually going, if I'm being honest with you, I was going just because the camp had a lake and a waterfront that was awesome and, like, a big blob, and I couldn't wait to, like, just play with my kids. And, you know, if there was totality, then there was totality. And so we waited, and then they actually had like the speaker come out, and he was talking about totality the night before. And there were some people, if you drove like an hour and a half, you could see two minutes of totality. But where we were at, you're only going to see about 30 seconds. And there were, the majority of the people at that camp were driving to go see the two full minutes of totality. And we laughed at them. We thought, wow, can you believe that? Driving so far for just a couple extra seconds. And then totality hit. And we were in awe. The birds flew, like all of a sudden we just saw flocks of birds flying away. And fish started jumping out of the lake. It, like animals went crazy. And we sat for 30 seconds in awe. And later on said, maybe we should have made the drive. <laughs> but there was a natural explanation. The natural explanation even, even still with the natural explanation, it was, it was awe-inspiring and I would drive days to go see that again. It was so amazing. Here, there will be no natural explanation. Humanity will be in awe, not just of an eclipse, but a partial dimming of the sun, the moon, and the stars. There will be no natural explanation. It will be clearly supernatural, and it will be clearly a sign to humanity that God is in charge of nature. The volcanoes that we fear, the earthquakes, the storms, all of those things that we can't control, God can. Then I looked. This then I looked reveals that there's, new, there's a new scene coming on. That there's something else. So, so we're going to take just one verse break in the trumpets. And in this one verse break, 
Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, and it said, Woe, woe, woe. The three woes emphasize. It is an urgent calling, saying, Wake up, people, wake up, wake up. To those who dwell on the earth. This term, dwell on the earth, is like earth dwellers, and what it means specifically is those who are still living life with the world's system. You can either live life following God and Christ and following grace and recognizing our depravity and recognizing that we have sinned against God. Every single one of us has shaken our fist against God at some point and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And for that reason, we are separated from God. God says, okay, but I'm holy and your way isn't holy. So there's a separation there. But God loving us with such a great love provided a way to come back. So he came in the flesh. He died on the cross. And all it takes to live in God's system, a system of grace, is to put your faith and trust in his work on the cross. There's no way you can undo your rebellion against God other than putting your faith in what Christ has done. So this term, earth dwellers, are those people that are still relying on their own achievements to make themselves righteous versus relying on Christ's achievement on the cross to make you righteous. So there is a woe, there is a cry out, there is a plea for those that are still living in the old system at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And essentially what, what this eagle is screaming to humanity is, you thought that was bad. God is simply demonstrating his control over the universe. You thought that was bad. You haven't seen anything yet. You thought that was bad. There is more to come. So I think we all share a similar struggle. We want to be God. We want to be the one controlling our own life. We want to be the ones calling the shots. And that's why we see the same themes pop up over and over again in Revelation. Disbelief is the result of rebellion, not confusion. It's a theme we'll see over and over again. That although God is demonstrating how powerful he is and and still giving us warning signs, there will always be those who just continue to harden their hearts more and more towards him. And we'll see the theme over and over again of worship because he's a holy God who is deserving and worthy of our worship. And these two are contrasted. Even in confusion, even if you were confused about God, you could still repent. Even if you were confused about God, you could still worship Him. But God is making it very clear about who He is and who we are. And even in the midst of that, there will be people that rebel and harden their heart towards God. Throughout the Bible, God makes it perfectly clear who He is and who we are. God gave the Canaanites plenty of time to repent. Plenty of time to say, God, I messed up. Will you forgive me? And God is so good to repent those who come to, re- or to forgive those who come to repentance. That's one of the reasons why Jonah, the story of Jonah and the well, that's one of the reasons why he ran. God called him to go to the Ninevites and preach to the Ninevites about God's goodness. And he said, I hate the Ninevites. I'm not going there. Forget those guys. And and, and he said, the problem with you, God, is that you'll forgive them. I hate them. I want to watch them die. 
And what's going to happen is, I'm going to preach to them, they're going to repent, and you're going to forgive. Jonah knew how forgiving and gracious God is. God has given you plenty of time to repent. God is still giving you time to repent. He's making it clear who He is. He's making it clear who you are. And He's making it clear that when you, ru- when you run your life, when you're the God of your life, when you don't submit to Him, you wreck your own life. But there's still time to repent. Will you still try to be God? Or are you ready to submit your life to the one true God who controls and has authority over heaven and earth? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. That is something we can trust, that is reliable. And we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. That though our sins abound, your grace abounds all the more. That you are a forgiving God. And Lord, we pray that you would help lead us to repentance. Help us to say no more, God. I don't want to be the one who's calling the shots, but I want to submit my life to you and follow you through. In your name we pray. Amen.